Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What is going on when Jesus talks to his disciples about cutting off a hand or a foot or worse, of plucking out an eye? Too often, readers stumble over these words, ignoring, dismissing, glossing over, or worst of all, inventing an interpretation. In fact, the meaning of the Lord's warning that it is better to cut off a stumbling appendage is simple, straightforward, and easy to understand. Its meaning is staring you in the face plain as day. It does not require an advanced degree, nor access to some special secret knowledge. On the contrary, its only requirement is familiarity. Are you familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans? Are you familiar with 1 Corinthians? How familiar? How many times have you read these letters in the past year? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 38 to 50. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 176 of the Bible as Literature podcast. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. This is the classic clash between identity and correct actions. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Don't listen to what a person says don't look at how they dress ignore the fireworks and watch their feet in sports if you want to understand how to defeat an opponent you have to observe and study their movement that is what jesus is doing here he's being purely practical it reflects the teaching of romans and it reflects the teaching of 1 corinthians jesus is saying look at how he behaves if it's correct if the way he behaves reflects the way the teaching wants him to behave what's your problem the disciples have it absolutely backwards because they swear allegiance in their mind they're a follower of christ and follow the correct actions jesus is saying no the criterion is are they performing the actions when the disciples don't act in the way that these strangers are acting they make themselves no longer followers of christ in romans 1 and romans 2 anyone has the opportunity to follow the law there are those who have the law presented to them to their face, and there are other ones who just by their nature happen to follow the law. It's whether you're doing the correct thing. This is intentionally a critique against the disciples. For he who is not against us is for us. That's the explicit emphasis on Paul's teaching in Romans. 
For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Again, it's very simple. It's so straightforward. It requires no special training to understand that if someone gives you a glass of water, you should be thankful because it's a kind and correct action, especially if you're thirsty. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, he doesn't say, now go out and give cups of water. He said, whoever gives you a cup of water, which is by nature someone who is not one of you, if anyone outside of you does one correct thing, because you're a follower of Christ, they have done the right thing. Now, you might not actually be doing anything correctly as a follower of Christ, but just because someone thinks you're a follower of Christ and performs a correct action, they have their reward. In this sentence, there is no reward for the disciple. It's actually a threat. And the full weight of the threat comes out shortly in the next verse. But it's a threat because if you are gaining any benefit because you're my follower, there's the risk that you're trying to claim some advantage because of your relationship to me. And that is unacceptable because the Christ is here to find the people who don't have a relationship to Jerusalem and to bring them into the fold. He is fighting Jerusalem. He is fighting this belief, this claim, this position that those who are inside and are, quote, closer have a special status exactly. or deserve special treatment. So Only the act of mercy has special status. Even if you are a scoundrel and people think, that you are a follower of Christ and they perform the correct action of mercy, they get a reward, you are under your own special judgment. Don't worry about that. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And here I have three words, context, context, context. People, like we talked about with the children before, want to impose their understanding of what the little ones are, that they're children and we have to treat children nicely or something like this. This is what it's supposed to mean. Or in the other passage where we look, where Jesus set a child in the midst of them, we think, oh, they're innocent. They have to be like innocent children. No, we have to read the context. The little one has a very specific function. It's someone who is performing the correct action in Jesus's name, whether it's giving a cup of water or casting out demons in your name, the little one is the one who's not inside the group, who doesn't have power. Like we mentioned about the child last time, Father, the child is the one who is powerless. And here it is the one who is on the outside and therefore is powerless. It is one who doesn't get the accolades of someone bringing them water but someone who performs the acts of submission bringing somebody water. And here is where we go into full gear with the application of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians. And just like you can't understand that the little one is the weaker brother, the weaker person in the community, or in this case, the weaker person outside the community who has some faith that you better not squash with your self-righteousness. That's the threat. We now hear Paul's full teaching about the body politic of Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul talks eloquently about how all of the different appendages of the body are essential for the well-being of the body of Christ. At the same time, he talks about handing someone over to Satan. 
this seeming contradiction in the mind of the hearer. Because how can you talk about handing someone over to Satan on the one hand, but also condemn self-righteousness? Because the reference is not the head of the community in terms of the one administering the teaching. The reference is the teaching and the well-being of the body, of the flock. And so what does Mark, Paul's disciple, say in the next verse? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So we have part of the body that could injure the whole body by causing one of the weakest in the community to stumble. What do you do with that part of the body? You cut it off so that the body will no longer stumble. The way that you show your trust in the Torah is by walking according to its ways. If you are not walking according to its ways, you stumble, you're no longer able to perform those activities, and so you cut it off because it's better than undergoing the judgment for those people who reject Torah. And here, the word hell is a translation of Gehenna, which in Palestine in late antiquity was a place where you would throw stuff to burn it. You would throw it into Gehenna, throw it away, burn it, dispose of it. So when Jesus talks about being cast into hell, this isn't a philosophical Hellenistic hell, nor is he referring to the domain of Hades in Greek mythology. He is, in true Semitic form, referring to a garbage dump in Palestine where you would throw stuff and burn it. The metaphor is extremely harsh, but I want you to hear it Semitically. In other words, as something that is referring to an actual thing, not to a concept that isn't actual. You're thrown into the trash. You're cast out. I mean, when I say thrown into the trash, everyone's like, ooh, we shouldn't throw people into the trash. But when Jesus talks about the casting out, you are cut off. But you aren't cut off because Jesus is in a bad mood. You're cut off because you decided no longer to walk in the way. How did you fight disease in late antiquity? You took things that were corruptible and could cause sickness and you burned them. How do you protect the body of Christ in Mark chapter nine? Just as you protect the body of Christ in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, you take the things that could be corruptible and could corrupt the body and you dispose of them so that they can't spread the disease. It's such a beautiful, concrete metaphor, and it's in its concreteness that it's so difficult to hear. Again, this is what Paul means when he talks about handing someone over to Satan. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And here, Mark is not talking about you, Richard, or me, Father Mark. He is referring to the body. It is better for the community to be saved, even if it means losing a foot. Once you hear it this way, you begin to understand how silly the individualization of this teaching is. It's also very dangerous for the disciples because what he's saying, if he's talking about the body of Christ, is that anyone, any part of the body that keeps the rest of the body from performing the actions of Torah needs to be cut off. And what happened with the disciples a moment ago? They ceased 
performing the actions of Torah, meaning acts of loving kindness, and started disparaging others who were performing acts of loving kindness. So who gets cut off in this scenario? It's the disciples themselves. Now, another thing I wanted to mention about this is, again, the foot causes you to stumble. If your hand causes you to stumble, if your foot causes you to stumble, it's the stumbling that's the problem. It's the moment that you cease walking in the ways of Torah. And thus far, we are talking also about the appendages of the body that lend themselves to idolatry, to the work of human hands, to the false footsteps that go against the teaching of the wisdom literature and of the Psalter. And now we come to the knockout punch. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So don't believe in Mark what you see. Believe, that is to say, trust what you hear. As Jesus says elsewhere, the eye is the lamp of the body. If that light is dark, everything is dark inside of you. Now, in the ancient world, they believed that the eye actually projected light, and that's how you saw. So the implication is that the eye with which you project onto the world is what creates the gods you worship, the things that you see. You're imposing your reality on what's actually there. And scripture is deconstructing your reality with its teaching, with what you hear. Scripture controls the ear. You can control your eye. You can control your hand and your foot. And that's why it causes suffering for the body of Christ. And it's the final blow when your eye causes you to stumble, because that means you can no longer even see the path. And if you can no longer even see the path, this is the ultimate corruption of your mind and of your thinking with false teaching because you can't even see where you're supposed to go. This is why you need to cut it off. For everyone will be salted with fire. Again, salted with fire. What does it mean? We're talking about purification. Making sure that the amputated limb can't cause infection. You prepare it and roast it in the fire, and then there's no risk that anyone's going to get disease from bacteria or whatever. Right. I mean, in the ancient world, salt and fire were things you used to disinfect. They didn't use the word disinfect because they didn't think of infection the way that we do. But they knew that it was salutary, and it brought great health even through the pain that fire might cause. You cauterize a wound with fire because that way you kept the entire body healthy. That's the point. And verse 49 really underscores what we're saying about this passage, that Jesus here is talking about the community gathered around him at the Eucharistic table to receive the teaching. That is what is of the utmost criticality in 1 Corinthians, and that is what is being emphasized here. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Again, 1 Corinthians. To have salt within yourselves here means to be judged because you have to be salted with fire. So you can't even think of Gehenna here, or as it's pronounced in Greek, Gehenna, as 
a place where you're punished and that's it and you're condemned. No, it's the place where you are handed over to Satan for a time until you reform your ways and can be welcomed back into the body. What's difficult about this last verse is that it means any member of the body could be handed over to Satan for a time for this very painful salting with fire for purification. And a lot of times people transpose Matthew into this where Matthew talks about you being the salt of the earth and you need to make the world tasty and salty and you no. know, and savory. <laughs> you know, you're not the you're not the savory spices of the world. You're not the Mrs. Dash of the world. Salt purifies. You had meat and you would salt it so that it would keep. Salt was used for preservation. So you need to keep the salt in yourself to preserve yourself so that you can be at peace with one another. Because if you don't salt yourself, you're going to rot. If you rot, you're going to act exactly like the disciples did here and start condemning those who aren't in your club. But the point is, the salt is added to you. I cannot stress this enough. The light is added to the lamp. The lamp does not produce the light. And the salt is the teaching. Correct. You have to keep the teaching inside yourself. So when Matthew talks about you being the salt of the earth, you're only the salt of the earth insofar as you're spreading the teaching throughout the earth in order to keep the earth from being rotten. But you only spread this by teaching and by performing actions of loving kindness. Here, you have salt in yourself. He doesn't say, make sure everyone around you is salty. No, have salt in yourself and that way be at peace. If you yourself are taking care of that you're doing the teaching, you're performing the teaching, you're teaching the teaching, then there can be peace with one another. If you put yourself under the judgment of the law, you will not dare say to me, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos or I am of Jesus. Because if you are under the judgment of the one who provides the salt, you will look only to yourselves as you are commanded in Galatians, and you will have humility, and there will be peace. You won't be nitpicking to see, is he with us or against us? Is he one of us or not one of us? You will just give thanks to God when you see the commandment at work in the world. You will do as modern Jews do correctly. You will shout, commandment. You don't shout, oh, is that a Jew or a Gentile who just did that good work? You don't shout that. You see a good work, you shout mitzvah. This is what Jesus is demanding of his disciples. First, that they would understand what the mitzvah is, and that then they would look for it in the world and give the praise to God when they see it, irrespective of the identity of the one doing the mitzvah. There's a beautiful Jewish prayer. If there is no blessing for the action that you're performing, the prayer that you say is, thank you, God, for giving me the ability to perform this mitzvah. Amen. Take care, Richard. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.